Chapter twelve of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In a late chapter, I promised to submit testimony from those high in authority, now the highest, showing that among those who had given the subject a most thoughtful attention, the opinion was unanimous in favor of the abolition of the civil Indian agents and licensed traders, and the transfer of the Indian Bureau back to the War Department where it originally belonged. The question as to which cabinet minister, the Secretary of War, or the Secretary of the Interior, should retain control of the Bureau regulating Indian affairs, has long been and is still one of unending discussion, and is far more important to the country than the casual observer might imagine. The Army as a unit, and from the motives of peace and justice, favors giving this control to the Secretary of War. Opposed to this view is a large, powerful, and at times unscrupulous party, many of whose strongest adherents are dependent upon the fraudulent practices and profits of which the Indian is the victim for the acquirement of dishonest wealth, practices and profits which only exist so long as the Indian Bureau is under the supervision of the Interior Department. The reasons in favor of the War Department having the control of the government of the Indians exists at all times. But the struggle for the control seems to make its appearance like an epidemic at certain periods and for a brief time. It will attract considerable comment and discussion both in and out of Congress, then disappear from public view. To a candid, impartial mind, I believe the reasons why the Indians should be controlled by the Department of War, the department which must assume the reins of power when any real control is exercised, are convincing. It may be asked, then why, if the reasons are so convincing, are not proper representations made to the authorities at Washington and the transfer secured? This inquiry seems natural enough, but the explanation is sufficiently simple. The Army officers, particularly those stationed on the frontier, have but little opportunity, even had they the desire, to submit their views or recommendations to Congress as a body or to members individually. When impressed with ideas whose adoption is deemed essential to the government, the usual and recognized mode of presenting them for consideration is by written communications forwarded through the immediate and superior commanders until laid before the Secretary of War, by whom, if considered sufficiently important, they are submitted to the President and by him to Congress. Having made this recommendation and furnished the Department with his reasons, therefore, an officer considers that he has discharged his duty in the premises and responsibility of the adoption or rejection of his ideas that rests with a superior power. Beyond the conscientious discharge of his duty, he has no interest, certainly none of a pecuniary nature, to serve. In the periodical contests which prevail between the military and the civil aspirants for the control of the Indian Bureau, the military contexts themselves, as above stated, with a brief and unbiased presentation of their views, and having submitted their argument to the proper tribunal, no further steps are taken to influence the decision. 
not so with those advocating the claims of the civil agents and traitors to public recognition the preponderance of testimony and the best of the argument rest with the military but there are many ways of illustrating that the battle is not always to the strong nor the race to the swift the ways congress are sometimes peculiar and not to employ a more expressive term under the constitution of the united states there are but two houses of congress the senate and the house of representatives and most people residing within the jurisdiction of its laws suppose this to be the extent of the legislative body but to those acquainted with the internal workings of that important branch of government there is still a third house of congress better known as the lobby true its existence is neither provided for nor recognized by law yet it exists nevertheless and so powerful although somewhat hidden is its influence upon other branches of government that almost any measure it is interested in becomes law it is sometimes remarkable that those measures which are plainly intended to promote the public interest are seldom agitated or advocated in the third house while those measures of doubtful propriety or honesty usually secure the almost undivided support of the lobby there are a few prominent questions connected with the feeble policy of the government which can do assemble so powerful and determined a lobby as a proposed interference with the system of civilian superintendents agents and traders for indians let but some member of congress propose to inquire into the workings of the management of the indians or propose a transfer of the bureau to the war department and the leaders of the combination opposed raise a cry which is as effective as rallying their supporters as was the signal of roderick dew from almost every state and territory the retainers of the bureau flock to the national capital why this rallying of the clans is there any principle involved with the few yes with the many no then why this determined opposition to any interference with the management of indians i remember making this inquiry years ago and the answer then which is equally applicable now was there is too much money in the indian question to allow it to pass into other hands this i believe to be the true solution of our difficulties with the indians at the present day it seems almost incredible that a policy which is claimed and represented to be based on sympathy for the red man and a desire to secure to him his rights is shaped in reality and manipulated beyond the scenes with the distinct and sole object of reaping a rich harvest by plundering both the government and the indians to do away with the vast army of agents traders and civilian employees which is a necessity appendage of the civilian policy would be to deprive many members of congress a vast deal of patronage which they now enjoy there are few if any more comfortable or desirable places of disposing of a friend who has rendered valuable political service or electoring aid than to secure him to the appointment of indian agent the salary of an agent is comparatively small men without means however eagerly accept the position 
and in a few years at furthest they almost invariably retire in wealth whoever heard of a retired indian agent or trader in limited circumstances how do they realize fortunes upon so small a salary in the disposition of the annuities provided for the indians by the government the agent is usually the distributing medium between himself and the indian there is no system of accountability no vouchers given or received no books kept in fact no record except the statement which the agent chooses to forward to the superintendent the indian has no means for knowing how much in value or how many presents of any particular kind the government the great father as he is termed it has sent him for knowledge on this point he must accept the statement of the agent the goods sent by the government are generally those which would most please an indian fancy the indian traders usually keeps goods of smaller character the trader is most frequently a particular friend of the agent and associated with him in business and in many instances holds his position of trader at the instance of the agent there are always located near each other the trader is usually present at the distribution of annuities if the agent instead of distributing to the indians all of the goods intended for them by the government only distributes one half and retains the other half who is to be the wiser not the indian defrauded though he may be for he is ignorant of how much is coming to him the word of the agent is his only guide he may complain a little express some disappointment at the limited amount of presents and intimate that the great father has dealt out annuities with a sparing hand but the agent explains it by referring to some depredations which he knows the tribe may have been guilty of in the past or if he is not aware of any particular instance of guilt he charges them with generally having committed such acts knowing one can scarcely go amiss in accusing a tribe of occasionally slaying a white man and ends up in his charge by informing them that their great father learning of these little irregularities in their conduct and being pained greatly thereat felt compelled to reduce their allowance of blankets sugar coffee and so on when at the same time the missing portion of said allowance is safely secured in the storehouse of the agent nearby well but how can he enrich himself in this manner it may be asked by simply and unseen by indians transferring the unused or unissued portion of the annuities from his government storehouse to the trading establishment of his friend the trader there the boxes are unpacked and their contents spread out for barter with the indians the latter in gratifying their wants are forced to purchase from the trader at prices which are scores of times the values of the article offered i have seen indians dispose of buffalo robes to traders which were worth from fifteen to twenty dollars each and get in return only ten to twenty cups of brown sugar the entire value of which did not exceed two or three dollars this is one of the many ways agents and traders have amassed sudden wealth i have known the head chiefs of a tribe to rise in a council in the presence of other chiefs and officers of the army and accuse his agent then present of these or similar dishonest practices 
it is to be wondered at that the position of the agent or trader among the indians is greatly sought after by men of determination to become rich but not particular as to the manner of doing so or is it to be wondered at that army officers who are made aware of the injustice done to the indians are yet powerless to prevent it and who trace many of our difficulties with the indians to these causes should urge the abolishment of a system which has proven itself so fruitful in fraud and dishonest dealing towards those whose interests it should be their duty to protect in offering the testimony which follows and which to those at all interested in the subject of our dealings with the indians must have no little weight i have given that of men whose interest in the matter could only spring from experience and a supposed thorough knowledge of the indian character and a desire to do justice to him as well as to the government at the present writing a heavy cloud protending a general indian war along our entire frontier from the british possessions on the north to the mexican border on the south hangs threateningly over us whether it will really result in war or the isolated acts of barbarity remains to be seen but enough is known to prove that the day has not yet arrived when the lawless savage of the plains is prepared or willing to abandon his favorite pastime of war and depredation upon the defenseless frontier and instead to settle quietly down and study the arts and callings of a quiet and peaceful life it is impossible for the indian to comprehend the forces of any law or regulation which is not backed up by a power sufficiently strong to compel its observance this is not surprising as a large portion of their white brethren are equally obtuse general sheridan showed his thorough appreciation of the indian character in an endorsement recently written by him upon a complaint relating to indian depredations forwarded from one of his subordinates to the war department general sheridan writes we can never stop the wild indians from murdering and stealing until we punish them if a white man in this country commits a murder we hang him if he steals a horse we put him in the penitentiary if an indian commits these crimes we give him better fare and more blankets i think i may say with reason that under this policy the civilization of the wild red man will progress slowly as might naturally be expected a massacre like that at fort phil kearney in which ninety-one enlisted men and three officers were slain outright and no one left to tell the tale excited discussion and comment throughout the land and raised inquiry as to who was responsible for this lamentable affair the military laid the blame at the door of the indian bureau with its host of civil agents and traders and accused the latter of supplying the indians with the arms and ammunition which were afterward turned against the whites the supporters of the indian bureau not only did not deny the accusation but went so far as to claim that all our difficulties with the indians could be traced to the fact that the military commanders particularly generals hancock and cook have forbidden the traders from furnishing the indians with arms and ammunition this was the official statement of the commissioner of indian affairs in the spring of eighteen sixty seven it was a rather queer complaint upon which to justify a war that because the government would not furnish the savages with implements for murdering its subjects in approved modern method these same savages 
would therefore be reluctantly forced to murder and scalp such settlers and travelers as fell in their paths in the old-fashioned tomahawk bow and arrow style the commissioner of indian affairs in his report to the secretary of the interior in the spring of eighteen sixty seven labored hard to find a justification for the indians in their recent outbreak at fort phil kearney the withholding of arms and ammunition from the indians seemed to be the principal grievance as the views of the commissioner find many supporters in quarters remote from the scene of the indian depredations and among persons who still cling to the traditionary indian as wrought by the pen of cooper and the ideal red man i quote the commissioner's words in order issued by general cook at omaha on the thirty first of july last in relation to arms and ammunition has had a very bad effect i am satisfied that such orders are not only unwise but really cruel and therefore calculated to produce the very worst effect indians are men and when hungry will like others resort to any means to obtain food and as the chase is their only means of subsistence if you deprive them of power of procuring it you certainly produce great dissatisfaction if it were true that arms and ammunition could be accumulated by them to war against us it would certainly be unwise to give it to them but this is not the fact no indian will buy two guns one he absolutely needs and has no means of taking care of powder he necessarily will take when offered to him but a very limited quantity it is true that formerly they hunted with bows and arrows killing buffalo antelope and deer with the same but to hunt successfully with bow and arrow requires horses and as the valleys of that country are now more or less filled with white men prospecting for gold and silver their means of subsisting their horses have passed away and now they have but few horses i mention these facts so as to place before the country as briefly as possible the condition as well as the wants of the indians unfortunately for the commissioner his premises were entirely wrong and his conclusions necessarily so it is a difficult task to prove that men whose habits instincts and training incline them to deeds of murder will be less apt to commit these deeds provided we place in their hands every implement and facility for their commission yet such an effect was the reasoning of the commissioner where or from whom he could have obtained the opinions he expressed it is difficult to understand he certainly derived no such ideas from a personal knowledge of indians themselves how well his statements bear examination if it were true that arms and ammunition could be accumulated by them to war against us it would certainly be worse to give it to them but this is not the fact no indian will buy two guns on the contrary every person at all familiar with the conduct of the indians know that there is no plan or idea which they study more persistently than that of accumulating arms and ammunition and in the successful execution of this plan they have collected and are today collecting arms and ammunition of the latest and most approved pattern the supply of arms and ammunition is not obtained for the purpose of hunting no matter how bountifully the indian may be supplied with firearms 
His favorite and most successful mode of killing the buffalo, his principal article of food, is with the bow and arrow. It is at the same time the most economical mode, as arrows, after being lodged in the bodies of the buffalo, may be recovered unimpaired and be used repeatedly. No Indian will buy two guns. If the Honorable Commissioner had added the words, provided he can steal them, his statement would be heartily concurred in. From a knowledge of the facts, I venture the assertion that there is scarcely an Indian on the plains, no matter how fully armed and equipped, but would gladly barter almost anything he owns of proper value in exchange for good arms and ammunition. Even if his personal wants in this respect are satisfied, the Indian is too shrewd at driving a bargain to throw away any opportunity of possessing himself of arms or ammunition, as among his comrades he is aware that no other article of trade command the prices that are paid for the implements of war. An Indian may not desire two guns for his own use, but he will buy or procure one gun and one or more revolvers as part of his equipment for war. And there are a few chiefs and warriors of the plains who today are not the possessors of at least one breech-loading rifle or carbine and from one or two revolvers. This can be vouched for by any officer who has been brought in contact with the hostile Indians of late years. As to the Indian of not having proper means to care for his ammunition, experts have shown that when he goes into action he carries a greater number of rounds of ammunition than do our soldiers, and in time of peace he exercises far better care of his supply than do our men. The Army declared itself almost unanimously against the issue of arms to the Indians, while the traders, who were looking to the profits and other of the Indian Bureau, proclaimed loudly in favor of the issue, unlimited and unrestrained. General Hancock, commanding at that time one of the most important and extensive of the Indian departments, issued orders to his subordinates throughout the Indian country similar to the order referred to of General Cook. The order simply required post commanders and other officers to prevent the issue or sale of arms and ammunition to any Indian of the plains. As we were then engaged in hostilities with nearly all tribes, it would have been simply assisting our enemies not to adopt this course. A spontaneous outcry came from the traitors who were to be affected by this order, an outcry that did not cease until it resounded in Washington. General Hancock reported his action in the matter to his next superior officer, at that time Lieutenant General Sherman. General Sherman at once sent the following letter to General Hancock, emphatically approving the course of the latter and reiterating the order. Headquarters Military Division of the Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, January 26, 1867. General I have at this moment received your letter of January 22nd about the sale of arms and ammunition to the Indians by traitors and agents. We, the military, are held responsible for the peace of the frontier, and it is an absurdity to attempt it if the Indian agents and traitors can legalize and encourage such dangerous a traffic. I regard the paper enclosed, addressed to Mr. D. A. Butterfield, and signed by Charles Bogie, W. R. Irwin, J. H. Leavenworth, and others, as an outrage upon our rights and supervision of the matter, 
and I now authorize you to disregard that paper and at once stop the practice of keeping the issue and sales of arms and ammunition under the rigid control and supervision of the commanding officers of the posts and districts near which the Indians are. If the Indian agents may, without limit, supply the Indians with arms, I would not expose our troops or trains to them at all, but would rather withdraw our soldiers who already have a Herculean task on their hands. This order is made for this immediate time, but I will, with all expedition, send these papers with a copy of this to General Grant, in hope that he will lay it before the President, who alone can control both war and Indian departments, under whom, at present, this mixed control of Indian question now rests in law and practice. Your obedient servant, W.T. Sherman, Lieutenant General Commanding. General W.S. Hancock, Commanding Department of the Missouri. This was before the peace policy had become supreme, or the appointment of the agents from the Society of Friends had been discovered as a supposed panacea for all our Indian difficulties. General Sherman, as stated in his letter, forwarded all the papers relating to the arms question to the headquarters of the Army. General Grant, then in command of the Army, forwarded them to the Secretary of War, accompanied by a following letter which clearly expresses his views, then held. Headquarters, Army of the United States, Washington, D.C., February 1, 1867. Sir, the enclosed papers just received from General Sherman are respectfully forwarded and your special attention invited. They show the urgent necessity for an immediate transfer of the Indian Bureau to the War Department, and the abolition of the civil agents and licensed traders. If the present practice is to be continued, I do not see that any course is left open to us but to withdraw our troops to the settlements and call upon Congress to provide means and troops to carry on formidable hostilities against the Indians, until all the Indians or all the whites on the Great Plains and between the settlements on the Missouri and the Pacific Slope are exterminated. The course General Sherman pursued in this matter, in disregarding the permits of Mr. Bogey and others, is just right. I will instruct him to enforce his order until it is countermanded by the President or yourself. I would also respectfully ask this matter be placed before the President and his disapproval of licensing the sale of arms to Indians asked. We have treaties with all tribes of Indians from time to time, if the rule is to be followed that all tribes with which we have treaties and pay annuities can produce such articles without stint or limit, it will not be long before the matter becomes perfectly understood by the Indians, and they avail themselves of it, be equipped themselves for war. They will get the arms either by making treaties themselves or through tribes who have such treaties. I would respectfully recommend that copies of the enclosed communications be furnished to the military commander of each House of Congress. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, U.S. Grant, General. Honorable E.M. Stratton, Secretary of War. In response to a request from General Grant to furnish the department with a statement of his views on the question of a transfer of the Indian Bureau from the Interior to the War Department, General John Pope, whose great experience among and knowledge of the Indians of the Plains eminently qualified him to judge the real merits of the question, wrote an able letter 
briefly stating the prominent reasons favoring the proposed changes. As a question of the transfer of the Indian Bureau from the control of the interior to that of the War Department is consistently being brought up, and after the failure of the present policy, it is most likely to be raised again, the arguments advanced by General Pope being these generally maintained by the Army and still having full force are here given. Washington, D.C., January 25, 1867. General, in compliance with your suggestions, I have the honor to submit the following leading reason why the Indian Bureau should be retransferred to the War Department. The views which I shall submit are by no means original, but are well-settled opinions of every officer of the Army who has had the experience on the subject, and are, and have been entertained for years by nearly every citizen of the territories not directly or indirectly connected with the present system of Indian management. Under the present circumstances, there is a divided jurisdiction over Indian affairs. While the Indians are officially at peace, according to the treaties negotiated with them by civil officers of the Indian Bureau, the military forces stationed in the Indian country have no jurisdiction over the Indians, and of consequence no certain knowledge of their feelings or purpose, and no power to take any action, either of a precautionary or aggressive character. The first that is known of Indian hostilities is a sudden report that the Indians have commenced a war, and have devastated many miles of settlements or massacred parties of immigrants or travelers. By the time such information reaches the military commander, the worst has been accomplished, and the Indians have escaped from the scene of the outrage. Nothing is left to the military except pursuit, and generally unavailing pursuit. The Indian agents are careful never to locate their agencies at the military posts for reasons very well understood. It is not in human nature that two sets of officials responsible to different heads, and not in accord with either opinion or purpose, should act together harmoniously, and instead of combined there is very certain to be conflicting action. The results are what might be expected. It would be far better to devolve the whole management of Indian affairs upon one or the other department, so as to secure at least consistent and uniform policy. At war, the Indians are under the control of the military, and peace under the control of civil officers. Exactly what constitute Indian hostilities is not agreed on. Besides this, as soon as the military forces, after a hard campaign, conducted with great hardship and at large expense, have succeeded in forcing the Indians into such a position that punishment is possible. The Indian agent, anxious for manifest reasons to negotiate a treaty, at once interferes to protect, as he expresses it, the Indians from the troops, and arrests the further prosecution of the military expedition just at the moment when results are to be obtained by it and the whole labor and cost of the campaign are lost. The Indian makes a treaty to avoid immediate danger by the troops without the slightest purpose of keeping it, and the agent knows very well that the Indian does not intend to observe it. While the army is fighting the Indians at one end of the line, Indian agents are making treaties and furnishing supplies at the other end, which supplies are at once used to keep up the conflict. 
With this divided jurisdiction and responsibility, it is impossible to avoid these unfortunate transactions. If the Indian Department, as at present constituted, were given sole jurisdiction of the Indians and the troops removed, it is certain that a better condition of things would be obtained than now exists, since the whole responsibility of Indian wars and their results to unprotected citizens would belong to the Indian Bureau alone, without the power of shifting the responsibility of consequences upon others. The military officer is a representative of force, a logic which the Indian understands and with which he does not invest the Indian agent. It is a fact which can be easily authenticated that the Indians in mass prefer to deal entirely with military commanders and would unanimously vote for the transfer of the Indian Department to the War Department. In this, they are mainly influenced by the knowledge that they can rely upon what the military commander tells or promises them, as they see he has the power to fulfill his promise. The first and great interest of the Army officer is to preserve the peace with the Indians. His home during the life is to be at the military post in Indian country, and aside from the obligations of duty, his own comfort and quiet and the possibility of escaping arduous, harassing field service against the Indians at all seasons of the year, accompanied by frequent changes of station which render it impossible for him to have his family with him, render a state of peace with Indians the most desirable of all things to him. He therefore omits no proper precautions and does not fail to use all proper means or just treatment honest distribution of annuities and fair dealing to secure quiet and friendly relations with the Indian tribes in his neighborhood. His honest distribution of the annuities appropriated to the Indians is further secured by his life commission in the army, and the odium which would blast his life and character by any dishonest act. If dismissed from the service for such malfeasance, he would publicly be branded by his own profession, and would be powerless to attribute his removal from office to any but true cause. The Indian agent, on the other hand, accepts his office for a limited time and for a specific purpose, and he finds it easy when he has secured his ends, the rapid acquisition of money, to account for his removal from office on political grounds or the personal enmity of some other official or his department superior in rank to himself. The eagerness to secure an appointment as an Indian agent on a small salary manifested by many persons of superior ability ought to of itself be a warning to Congress as to the objects sought by it. It is a common saying in the West that next to, if not indeed before, the Council to Liverpool, the Indian agency is the most desirable office in the gift of the government. Of course, the more treaties an Indian agent can negotiate, the larger the appropriation of money and goods which passes through the hands, and the more valuable his office. An Indian war on every other day, with treaty-making on intermediate days, would be therefore the condition of affairs most satisfactory to such Indian agents. I by no means say that all Indian agents are dishonest. In truth, I know some who are very sincere and honorable men, who try to administer their office with fidelity to the government, but that the mass of Indian agents on the frontier are truly 
only to their own personal and pecuniary interests. I am very sure no one familiar with the subject will dispute. I repeat, then, that a condition of peace with the Indians is above all things desirable to the military officers stationed in their country, something very like the reverse to the Indian agent. The transfer of the Indian Bureau to the War Department would at once eliminate from our Indian system the formidable army of Indian superintendents, agents, sub-agents, special agents, jobbers, contractors, and hangers-on who now infest the frontier states and territories and save to the government annually a sum of money which I will not venture to estimate. The Army officer detailed to perform the duty in their place would receive no compensation in addition to their Army pay. Previous to the creation of the Interior Department and the transfer of the Indian Bureau to that department, Army officers performed well and honestly the duties of Indian agents, and it is only necessary to refer to our past history to demonstrate that our relations at that time with the Indians were far more friendly and satisfactory than they have been since. The military are absolutely necessary in the Indian country to protect the lives and property of our citizens. The Indian agents and superintendents are not necessary, since their duties have been and can be faithfully and efficiently performed by the Army officers stationed with the troops. Harmonious and concerted action can never be secured while both parties are retained. The military are necessary the civilian officers are not, and it is essential that one or the other be displaced. I cannot see what doubt exists to which party must give way. These are only the general reasons for the retransfer of the Indian Bureau to the War Department, reasons which are well understood by every one familiar with the subject. In order that any policy, whatever, may be consistently and efficiently pursued, a change in our present administration of Indian affairs is absolutely essential. The retransfer of the Indian Bureau to the War Department is believed to be the first step toward a reformation, and until that step is taken, it is useless to expect any improvement in the present condition of our Indian relations. I am, General, respectfully your obedient servant, John Pope, Brevet Major General, U.S. Army. General U.S. Grant, General-in-Chief, Washington, D.C. General Grant was at that time so impressed with the importance of General Pope's letter that he forwarded it to the Secretary of War with the request that it might be laid before both branches of Congress. It might be urged that the above letters and statements are furnished by officers of the Army who are exponents of but one side of the question, Fortunately, it is possible to go outside the military circle and introduce testimony which should be considered impartial and free from bias. At this particular period in the discussion of the Indian question, Colonel E.S. Parker, a highly educated and thoroughly cultivated gentleman, was asked to submit a plan for the establishment of a permanent and perpetual peace and for settling all matters of differences between the United States and the various Indian tribes. Colonel Parker is well known as a distinguished chief of the once powerful Six Nations, and since the time referred to has been better known as Commissioner of Indian Affairs during the early part of the present administration. Being an Indian, 
His sympathies must be supposed to have been on the side of his own people, and in his endeavor to establish a permanent peace, he would recommend no conditions prejudicial or unjust to their interests. He recommended, first, transfer of the Indian Bureau from the Interior Department back to the War Department or military branch of the government, where it originally belonged until within the last few years. The condition and disposition of all Indians west of the Mississippi River, as developed in consequence of the great and rapid influx of immigration by reason of the discovery of the precious metal throughout the entire West, renders it of the utmost importance that the military supervision should be extended over to the Indians. Treaties have been made with a very large number of tribes, and generally reservations have been provided as homes for them. Agents appointed from civil life have generally been provided to protect their lives and property, and to attend to the prompt and faithful observance of treaty stipulations. But as the hardy pioneer and adventurous miner advanced into the inhospitable regions occupied by the Indians in search of the precious metals, they found no rights possessed by the Indians that they were bound to respect. The faith of treaties solemnly entered into was totally disregarded, and Indian territory wantonly violated. If any tribe remonstrated against the violation of their natural and treaty rights, members of the tribe were inhumanely shot down, and the whole treated as mere dogs. Retaliation generally followed, and bloody Indian wars have been the consequence, costing many lives and much treasure. In all, troubles arising in this manner to civil agents have been totally powerless to avert the consequences, and when too late the military has been called in to protect the whites and punish the Indians, when if in the beginning the military had had the supervision of the Indians, their rights would not have been improperly molested, or if disturbed in their quietude by any lawless whites, a prompt and summary check to any further aggression could have been given. In cases where the government promises the Indians the quiet and peaceable possession of a reservation, and precious metals are discovered or found to exist upon it, the military alone can give the Indians a need of protection and keep the adventurous miner from encroachment upon the Indians until the government has come to some understanding with them. In such cases, a civil agent is absolutely powerless. Most of the Indian treaties contain stipulations for the payments to Indians or annuities, either of money or goods, or both, and agents are appointed to make these payments whenever the government furnishes them in the means. I know of no reason why officers of the Army could not make all these payments as well as civilians. The expense of agencies would be saved, and I think the Indians would be more honestly dealt with. An officer's honor and interest are at stake, which impels him to discharge his duty honestly and faithfully. While civil agents have none of these incentives, the ruling passion with them being generally to avoid all trouble and responsibility and to make as much money as possible out of their offices. In the retransfer of this bureau, I would provide for the complete abolishment of the system of the Indian traders, which, it, in my opinion, is a great evil to Indian communities. I would make the government the purchaser of all articles usually brought in by Indians, giving them a fair equivalent for the same in money or goods at cost prices. 
In this way, it would be an easy matter to regulate the sale or issue of arms and ammunition to Indians, a question which of late has agitated the minds of the civil and military authorities. If the entry of large numbers of Indians to any military post is objectionable, it can be easily arranged that only limited numbers shall be admitted daily. Colonel Parker next quotes from the messages of Washington and Jefferson, showing that they had favored the exclusion of civil agents and traders. His recommendation then proceeds. It is greatly to be regretted that this benefit of humane policy has not been adhered to, for it is a fact not to be denied that at this day Indian trading licenses are very much sought after, and when once obtained, although it may be for a limited period, the lucky possessor is considered as having already made his fortune. The eagerness also with which the Indian agencies are sought after, and large fortunes made by the agents in a few years, notwithstanding the inadequate salary given, is presumptive evidence of frauds against the Indians and the government. Many other reasons might be suggested why the Indian Department should altogether be under military control, but a familiar knowledge of the practical working of the present system would seem to be the most convincing proof of the propriety of the measure. It is pretty generally advocated by the most familiar with our Indian relations, and so far as I know, the Indians themselves desire it. Civil officers are not usually respected by the tribes, but they fear and regard the military and will submit to their consuls' advice and dictation when they would not listen to a civil agent. In discussing the establishment of reservations, the locating of the Indians upon them, Colonel Parker said, It may be imagined that a serious obstacle would be presented to the removal of the Indians from their homes on account of the love they bear for the graves of their ancestors. This, indeed, would be the least and last objection that would be raised by any tribe. Much is said in books about the reverence paid by Indians to the dead and their antipathy to deserting their ancestral graves. Whatever may have been the customs for the dead in the ages gone by, and whatever pilgrimages have been made by those to the graves of their loved and distinguished dead, none of any consequence exists at the present day. They leave their dead without any painful regrets or shedding of tears. And how could it be otherwise with a people who have had such indefinite and vague ideas of a future state of existence, to my mind, it is unnatural to assume or suppose that the wild and untutored Indian can have more attachment for his home or love for the graves of his ancestors than the civilized and enlightened Christian. I regret that I cannot, in this brief space, give all the suggestions and recommendations submitted by this eminent representative of the red man, displaying as they do sound judgment and thorough mastery of his subject. In regard to the expense of his plan, he says, I believe it to be more economical than any other plan that could be suggested. A whole army of Indian agents, traders, contractors, jobbers, and hanger-owners would be dispensed with, and from them would come the strongest opposition to the adoption of this plan, as it would effectually close them from the corrupt sources of their wealth. 
General Grant, then commanding the army, must have approved at that time of the views of the distinguished Indian, for a few years later, on entering upon the duties of the President of the United States, he appointed him Commissioner of Indian Affairs, thus giving Colonel Parker an opportunity to inaugurate the system, which he had urged as being the most conducive to the welfare of his people, and tending to restrain them from acts of war. The influences brought to bear by the exponents of the peace policy, as it was termed, were too powerful to be successfully resisted, and Colonel Parker felt himself forced to resign his position, for the reasons, as stated by him, that the influences operating against him were so great that he was unable to give effect to the principles which he believed should prevail in administering the affairs of his important bureau. The latter part of the summer and fall of 1867 was not characterized by active operations either upon the part of the troops or that of the Indians. A general council of all the tribes infesting the southern plains was called to assemble on Medicine Lodge Creek. This council was called in furtherance of a plan of pacification proposed by Congress with a view to uniting and locating all the tribes referred to on a reservation to be agreed upon. Congress provided that the tribes invited to the council should be met by a peace commission on the part of the government, composed of members of each House of Congress, distinguished civilians, and officers of the Army of high rank. At this council, all the southern tribes assembled, Presents in profusion were distributed among the Indians, the rule of distribution, I believe being as usual that the worst Indians received the greatest number of valuable presents. An agreement was entered into between the Indians and the representatives of the government. Reservations embracing a large extent of the finest portions of the public lands were fixed upon to the apparent satisfaction of all concerned and the promise of the Indians to occupy them and to keep away from the settlements and lines of travel was made without hesitation. This was the beginning of the promised era of peace. The lion and the lamb had agreed to lie down together, but the sequel proved that when they got up again, the lamb was missing. End of chapter 12